I was joking with someone this morning that with it being a little cooler, this might be a good day for a hellfire and brimstone sermon. And then I realized maybe some of you would think that sounds a little appealing. So we're not going to go that direction. We're going to uh, do what we had scheduled to do, which may be different than what you were expecting. Um, We started a few months ago on the fifth Sunday, which today, by the way, is the fifth Sunday. That every fifth Sunday, we are doing a part of a series called Preaching What We Practice. Uh, The intention of this is for those who maybe are new, who wonder, why do these guys do that in their Sunday morning worship? Or for those who have been around for a long, long time, maybe it's good to remind ourselves about the reasons we choose to do the things that we do in our worship time together. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on the very thing that is happening right now. The sermon, the lesson, the Word of God, the message, the exhortation, whatever name that you know it by. Now, there are some people across the Christian landscape that are questioning the value or the importance of sermons. Somebody might say, well, I'm literate. I have my own Bible. Why do I need someone to preach to me? If I have questions about the Bible, I can Google it. And I could find an answer to that question. Or maybe if I want to hear it spoken to me, I could probably go to YouTube and find a sermon. And that sermon would probably be done by somebody who is smarter than the guy I have to listen to. And it's a much more entertaining way to ingest that information. And so why not just go to YouTube? I mean, why don't we just skip this, move on to something better, the greener pastures of whatever we would do if we could recapture this time we spend on a Sunday morning. Or if we do want to have a a time of scripture, why not just have someone come up, read a scripture, sit down? That would happen a lot faster than what we choose to do. And so why do we take the time for a sharing of scripture? Now, I should acknowledge that I might not be the best person to address this. You know, if you ask somebody who's on disability, if you think there should continue to be disability payments, what do you think they're going to say? Um, but I'm going to do my best to share what I believe Scripture teaches about the importance of the time that for the collective body to share in a time of focusing on the Word of God. I'm going to be talking about First uh, Timothy a little bit this morning if you want to be turning there. But First Timothy, it begins where you have Paul who serves as a, a mentor and sort of like a supervisor to Timothy. And they have gone to Ephesus and they have been working together in Ephesus doing the work of ministry. Eventually, Paul decides he's going to go on to Macedonia. And while he's in Macedonia, he sees that it's important to write a few instructions back to Timothy about how he ought to conduct himself and what he ought to be doing there while Paul is away. And so Paul, in a part of this letter, 1 Timothy 3.15 informs us that Paul says, If I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. So Paul is going to instruct Timothy some of the things that need to be happening in the household of God, in the context of the church. And so what should be happening, what should be being done in the household of God, Paul emphasizes, until I arrive, give attention to three things. The public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, and to teaching. One of my Bible dictionaries gives this definition for the word forgive attention. To continue with close attention and devotion. 
to, to, to continue to give oneself to, to continue to apply oneself to. We might use the word, make it a priority or give focus to these three elements. So I think Timothy is in a situation that a lot of us can identify with. He's kind of like the bee buzzing around with all flowers in it. And where does his attention go? Where does his energy go? What ought he to be doing? Because in Ephesus, there's a lot happening that needs to be addressed in the church. And Timothy is well aware of the limit of his own capacity. He has much like the hose or much like the internet. There's, there's a bandwidth limit to what he can do and to what he can address. What deserves his time? What deserves his energy? Should, should, should he invest his energy in ways that's a mile wide? Or should he invest his energy in a way that is a mile deep? Paul has already told Timothy some of the things that ought not to be garnering people's attention. He uses a different word in this English translation, but uh, Paul has told Timothy to tell people not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies. There are some things that we give time and attention to that we ought not to. Our attention should not be going to these meaningless discussions. There are some things that are important and there are some things that are not. And so Paul has already given kind of the negative instruction about don't give attention here. And Timothy might be wondering, well, where should I be giving the attention? And of course, Paul then points him in the right direction in chapter 4, verse 13, where he says, what then deserves your attention? It's these three things. The public reading of Scripture, exhorting, and teaching. And so I want us to look piece by piece at these elements that Paul says should get our attention when the church is gathered. And so we begin first with the public reading of Scripture. Now, you might have a translation like the American Standard Version that says instead just simply reading. It doesn't mention that this is public, and it doesn't mention that it's Scripture. So where do we get the notion or the idea that this might be a public, communal, corporate activity? The word is used three times in the New Testament Scripture. The other two times, Acts 13, 15, 2 Corinthians 3, 14. And in those contexts, it's absolutely clear that we're talking about a congregational context, that this is then a public reading. And the other thing is when you put this reading alongside with ex- exhorting, we're going to see here a pattern where we realize this is indeed a public thing that happens in a corporate place. So let's talk about that second piece because it helps inform the first. Paul says the second thing that we pay attention to is to exhorting. There is a relationship when um, coming out of their Jewish heritage, when the synagogue gathers, where there is reading, and reading is accompanied by exhorting. Here's one of those passages that can illustrate. uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the officials of the synagogue sent to them a word, a message saying, brothers, if you have any what? Word of encouragement for the people, give it. So we begin to to recognize that when uh, the Jews would gather in the synagogue, there would be a reading. And then after that reading, there would be some some words about that. And those words about the reading were called an exhortation. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus back in Luke chapter 4, where he, he goes to Nazareth, he reads the scripture. And so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. We're probably familiar enough to realize he read something out of the book of Isaiah. And so we have the reading that happens. And after the reading is done, it says, And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. 
Why were the eyes fixed on him? Because they expected next what? A word of exhortation. They expected Jesus to then have something more to say about this. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. A reading is followed up by an exhortation. So I think it's important for us to notice that in very, very few instances where we have recordings of New Testament sermons, there is, I couldn't find an exception, but I'm not confident enough to say it's not there, so someone can try and find this. But anytime you have a reading of Scripture, you also have accompanying it some comments about it, some words of exhortation. And so, so to answer the one question we said earlier, why not just have some guy come up here, read a scripture, and then sit down and let all of us decide what we want to do with that passage? The answer is simple. To just simply read scripture without comment is not a scriptural practice. Because what we find is when the church gathers, there is a reading, and then there is an exhortation that follows that reading. The exhortation has to be derived by, from, and faithful to Scripture. So when a person exhorts, that exhortation must be scriptural itself. So the Scripture gives us the recipe of sorts, and anybody who exhorts has to follow the recipe of the Scripture. There needs to be a reproducing with Scripture being the core. You'll find this recognition as you look at this word exhorting is it will mean different things in different places. We, we will use the word exhorting. It's the same word used for encouragement. And we tend to always say that this means that, that there's going to be some positive comments that come in that. But the word exhorting in the New Testament, it's a duct tape kind of a word. It's multi-purpose. You can use it for all sorts of things. And, and really one of the, the root words there, it simply means to call. So if you're going to exhort people, you're going to call them into or out of something. So some of the English words that will be translated for the same word that's used for exhort is to encourage, to console, to request, to appeal, or to challenge. The word rebuke there, okay? Um, So there's this recognition that when you're in the act of exhorting, what you need to do is you need to do what Scripture has done. So um, there's a guy named James Hopewell, and he says there's four things that can happen with a Scripture. And I want to show how these things, four things, will line up with how an exhortation can go. So Hopewell says, when you read Scripture, sometimes you'll find it will affirm the direction of your life. You read a Scripture and it says, okay, here's what's happening. And you say, this is the direction of my life. But so if you're going to exhort with a Scripture that has the intention, then your exhortation would be something like this. Keep going. You're doing great. Don't give up. That would be what? That would be a word of exhortation based on a Scripture. But sometimes when we read scripture, it can push you to do something more deeply or more seriously or more intensely. So the word of exhortation then becomes you're heading in the right direction, but something more is asked of you. Take the next deeper step because scripture is called something then or exhortation calls for the same thing. Sometimes scripture can contradict our direction. We find out we're heading a direction that we ought not to be heading. So what does a word of exhortation there sound like? It sounds like, stop! Don't do it! You're making a mess of your life! That's a word of exhortation. The fourth thing that Scripture can do, it can transform our lives and the direction of our lives. 
So a word of exhortation in that context will be, don't you see you're a new creation in Christ Jesus? He has made you into something new. Like in our Bible class this morning, you are a mighty warrior whether you see it or not. A transformation that's being called for, and that's the exhortation that happens there. You may have heard this phrase, the job of a preacher is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That's this essence of exhortation. It's a recognition that it will do whatever scripture calls or needs for it to do. Just to make sure we see this relationship between scripture and exhortation more clearly, one last illustration out of scripture. We're not going to read all of this sermon in Acts chapter 13, uh, or chapter 13, verses 15 through 41. But I want us to notice three key moves that you see that happen here. I remember this is the case they have had. Uh, the reading has happened, and they say, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation, bring it. And so Paul gets up, and Paul begins by, with a scriptural foundation. He talks about what God has done in history, the ways that God has been at work. He quotes scripture. And so there's this section where there is this scriptural foundation to any word of exhortation. When he gets to Acts chapter 13, verses 38 through 39, then Paul makes a conclusion. And guess what? His conclusion is going to match that of scriptures. So, so his conclusion can't be, you know, scripture says to do this, but I'm going to tell you to do something different. It matches. So here's the conclusion. Let it be known to you, therefore, that therefore is a key that Paul's saying, okay, in light of scripture, here's a conclusion. Let it be known to you, therefore, my brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from all those sins from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Scripture, a conclusion coming out of Scripture, and then there's an exhortation. There's a call to something. That happens in Acts 13, 40 through 41, and we'll just read the first part of 13. Beware, therefore... That's the exhortation. So, so we've got scripture, we've got a conclusion from scripture, and then the exhortation is this, you better be careful. I say, well, that doesn't sound like encouraging. It is encouraging because if you need to be aware, you need someone to tell you. You might be heading in the wrong direction. Beware that what the prophets said does not happen to you. And then he goes and he quotes the prophets. But there's scripture and there's exhortation and these things work in relationship with one another. The third thing that Timothy is called to pay attention to and the congregation then is to teaching. And this is an especially relevant uh, instruction for because Ephesus is kind of a doctrinal mess. Uh, people are going around and saying all sorts of things. Uh, earlier we mentioned that um, Peter or uh, Timothy was instructed to tell them those who are teaching a different doctrine that they ought not to be doing that. And then there's a warning from Paul about what's coming down the line. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. So Timothy is supposed to give attention to teaching and specifically to teaching sound doctrine because there's an awful lot of not sound doctrine out there and there's an expectation that the frequency is going to increase. So what's Timothy supposed to do? Paul says, I put these instructions before you, brothers and sisters, so you will be good servants of Christ Jesus, nourishing on the words of faith and of the sound teaching that you have followed. One of the keys that it, when it comes to teaching is that teaching means being faithful to what has been received 
in the teachings. So in some ways, teaching, while it can be creative, teaching in many ways is much more like photocopying what has been received. You'll see this recognition in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 9. It says, As we have said before, so now I repeat it, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let that one be accursed. In the New Testament, this word received, it's talking about there's a very specific doctrine of information that has been passed along. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, here's the gospel as I received it, and it's the gospel of I passed on to you that what happened? Christ was buried, that he was uh, that, that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared. And Paul says that's what needs to get passed along that is sound doctrine and sound teaching. I think if we put all of these elements together, the reading, the exhorting, the teaching, we can put them in one basket, and we'll just call that basket a ministry of the Word. So I want us to just look at this ministry of the Word and, and, and our responsibility to it. There is a sense in which all of us are ministers of the word. What does Paul say in Colossians? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. We are all ministers of the word in this aspect and in this sense. That, that when, we, when we see someone living in a certain way or doing something, that, that it's our burden and our responsibility to ensure that those who are part of the family of God, that they are taught, that they are admonished in terms of the word of God. But ironically, there is also these very narrow ways in which there's teaching that occurs. Three passages in scripture talk about different gifts and each of them mention the gift of teaching. So it seems to me that there's a conclusion that we're gonna have to figure out what to do with this because all Christians are ministers of the word in one sense and yet few Christians are teachers in a different sense. So how do we fit these pieces together? I think we recognize here that as teaching becomes more public and more frequent, there should be more accountability. I mean, if I, if I have a conversation with one person, there's a different kind of an accountability to somebody who does exactly what I'm doing right now, which is teaching. And that there is um, to be some accountability there. So I think that there are in the Bible, and in our practices as a church, there are certain guard wells, rails, and safeguards in place to ensure that sound doctrine happens. And I want to just go over those so that you're aware that they exist, um, and as a reminder of how importantly we take the Word of God. So here's the first of three guard rails. Number one, all who teach must acknowledge the seriousness of what they do. Look at these two scriptures. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Peter is not saying here that when a person teaches, they are speaking the very words of God, but they must assume the responsibility that some will hear those words as if it's God's word for them. So there's a great responsibility there. That's why James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There is increasing count accountability for those who are uh, a part of a more public teaching ministry. Now, I'm going to address this from my own perspective, and maybe some of you know this, maybe some of you don't, but one of the ways that I practice this paying attention to my responsibility as a teacher, I do a lot of preaching and teaching here, is that every week I spend a minimum of six hours just in studying the text that I'm about to preach. Okay? So the reason I do that is because I think 
that there's a value in making sure that whatever's said to the congregation has been properly studied. That, that, that it's not my assumptions and my whims and my thoughts. And so what I do on Monday is I will print up a, a double-spaced text and I'll get out a, a, a piece of a pen and I'm just going to start there and I'm going to underline things that I notice and I'm going to circle things that I notice. I'm going to look up things in a Bible dictionary. I'm going to go through that entire process because I, I believe when I preach, it, it, it's not Craig's best ideas of the week or um, Craig's insights for life living or, 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 or Craig's morality lesson of the week. It's the word of God that any teacher is called uh, to present to the congregation. And so that's a safeguard is the first is that every individual teaching um, takes responsibility for the seriousness of what they do. But does that then mean that a teacher will never say something they ought not to say? I don't think so. So that leads us to the second safeguard. Anyone who teaches has a responsibility to everyone else in the congregation. That means you as a listener have both the right and the responsibility. If something is said in a public context of teaching that is not according to sound doctrine or that you don't believe is according to sound doctrine, then the conversation needs to happen. Someone needs to say, if I'm the example there, to say, Craig, can we sit down and talk about what you said? Because what you said doesn't seem to accord with what I'm reading in Scripture. And so that's something that does happen. In fact, in this last week, I've had three really good, really healthy follow-up conversations on things I've said either in a sermon or in a class so that we can clarify and we can make sure we're understanding what Scripture says. But let's imagine you do that. You've now come and had a conversation with the teacher and you're still not convinced at the end of that that what the teacher is teaching is right or accurate. That leads us then to the third safeguard. Everything taught in this congregation is subject to the spiritual authority of our elders. You probably got heebie-jeebies when you saw the word authority. We're not a people who like authority. We would rather have a democratic process. Let's vote whether Jesus really died in the flesh. Let's have a vote, and if, if the vote doesn't go our way, then we're going to say, nope, he, he didn't come in the flesh. He didn't die in the flesh. He wasn't born in the flesh. You see that in the New Testament? Let's have democratic votes about what doctrine is right or not right. No, the process we see in the New Testament is there are certain men who are appointed by the congregation who are responsible to safeguard the teaching in the congregation. Titus 1.9, speaking of elders, says, he must have a firm grasp of the word that is trustworthy in accordance with the teaching so that he may be able both to preach with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. There have been occasions fortunately not many, where I have either before teaching something, I've sent the elders something where I said, here's what I'm teaching. If we need to have a conversation about it, let's do it beforehand. Or other occasions where either myself or someone else has said, here's a teaching that's in question, and I want you guys to look at this and tell me whether this is according to sound doctrine. And I say all of this to say, it's a way of illustrating that we take the word of God seriously. That, 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 that we're not looking for uh, somebody to, to flippantly handle the word of God and say, oh, well, just say whatever you want to say. We're good with that. We're not good with that. We want our teachings to represent the very words of God. And so we have these safeguards in place. You probably remember that several months ago, we went through this um, process of we're working towards a mission statement. One of the first things we did was identity. What are some of our core values and identities as a congregation? And one of those value statements that came out is that we are Bible-based. 
And because we are a Bible-based church, that means when you come and we gather together, you can expect these things to happen. You can expect there to be some reading of Scripture. You can expect there to be some exhorting. And you can expect there to be some teaching. And we give attention to these things because the Word of God tells us to give attention to each and every one of these things. And so I want to just kind of finish with this, this uh, picture or a way of imagining why this is such an important thing for us. So I want you to imagine that each of us is given a radio and kids, you can ask your parents later what a radio is. But we each have a radio and that radio can tune into two stations. It's the only capability is two stations and one station is the Word of God. And, and on that station, the, the, the Word of God is proclaimed, the Word of God is announced, the Word of God is told. God's plans for His creation are made known, God's purposes are revealed, God's values are shown. And so that one radio station gives us the things of God. But there's another radio station that the radio can pick up, and this is the values of the world. That the current contemporary ideas about what people ought to be doing with their lives, about what's important and what's valuable and what's significant. And so when you go to work, you're going to be hearing that radio playing there. That station is going to be playing. And so two things that we need to recognize about this radio in our lives. Number one is that as a church, our responsibility is to be sure that the radio of God, that station is played loud and clear. You should expect, in fact, you should hold this congregation accountable if you come and you gather together and the Word of God is not proclaimed, the Word of God is not shared, the Word of God is not preached, then there should be a revolution. Why? Because you should expect to hear clearly the Word of God when we come together as the people of God. But while the church is dialed into that station, there's a recognition that each of us have responsibility for ensuring both the volume of which of those two stations we listen to and which one is turned up the loudest. Um, in Romans chapter 10, Paul talks about the importance of going and taking the good news to people so they can hear the good news. I actually think we have a very different issue happening today, which is the good news is there. The good news is being played. Just sometimes we're not in the room when the radio's playing. And it's absolutely important that we as individuals take time, this can be in our devotions, but in a communal sense, that we take time to ensure that we are listening to the words of God that are being broadcast to the people of God. And so I encourage each of us to make the word of God central. We will make it central as a church in order with a desire that it will be central in each of our lives. May the word of God be implanted richly Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Indeed, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And for that, we make the Word of God central. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine His face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, just remember, we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to respond in any way, uh, some of our shepherds will be in the back, I'll be in the back, um, but just respond if you'd like as we stand and sing this next song together. Let's stand.